Hey y'all, this is Gary Meese with a case against which is it's a this is a podcast looking mostly at the West Memphis 3 case. Uh, and yesterday I did a, a I diverged from that somewhat and I talked some about Bob Ruff's ridiculously failed investigation of the the case you know he's apparently about to wrap up uh his season follow-up and he all he had since his oxygen special much ballyhooed oxygen special that required uh, a two-year uh delay in finishing up the case all he had after that is a rehash of those episodes which contributed virtually nothing new to the case. Uh, with the exception of talking to Ryan Clark who had been on the hadn't been on the record and may, there might have been a few other things there that uh, of marginal interest, but Clark didn't really add anything to uh, the case discussion. And in fact, I think his personal beliefs probably don't coincide with Ruff's. And I, I really wonder what his opinion will be when he sees how this wraps up. And his brother, Ruff, basically throws him under the bus like he's throwing everybody else under the bus with this. Um, and then we had a two-part. Uh, we had some Damien and Jason interviews. Absolutely pointless. Uh, nothing we've haven't heard before many many times, and then we had we're about to tomorrow we're going to have the the roundup on the David Jacoby interview, and uh, Jacoby gave some details that he hadn't given before in official interviews Sunday, last Sunday, but it wasn't anything earth shattering. Uh, I think it demonstrates more than anything that. Uh, and I got into this quite a bit yesterday, and I'll try not to go off on this tangent too far, but basically it sh shows that um, Jacoby and uh, Terry Hobbs went on some f fairly lengthy searches together uh, between the t and spent quite a bit of time together between uh, the time the boys were... Uh, between five and say nine o'clock that evening, uh, Hobbs's uh, whereabouts are accounted for by some other people as well. So it's not as if it, this this is a total vacuum, and we have Hobbs' own statements, which don't totally coincide with Jacoby's, but they're not greatly at variance with them either. It gets into details about what time they did, uh, particularly. Uh, I think Hobbs places himself at the uh, at the entrance to uh, the where the woods would have been at say six or six thirty. People harp on this a great deal. Uh, you know, I, I don't dispute that he was there. I'm not sure what that proves. He was out looking for his kid, uh, and it, you know if and. Uh, <laughs> Again, what's what's the point of that? You know, 
that was in the area. He was looking around. Uh, it doesn't prove anything. Uh, it doesn't coincide necessarily with what Jacoby says, but I'm not sure it con- conflict, conflicts with it that much either. So, uh, other than that, you know, I don't know what Jacoby's going to say tomorrow. I'm not going to try to predict that, but I don't anticipate it's going to really shed any significant new light on the case. Um, other than that, I went off on a tangent with Centoya Brown. Basically, I, I've done about all I'm going to do with that case, uh, commenting on uh, the Netflix film Murder to uh, Murder to Mercy. Basically, a 16-year-old girl who's working as a prostitute shoots a guy in the head while he's asleep, uh, robs him, gets convicted of murder. There's some mitigating circumstances. She was a victim of uh, sexual trafficking. I'm not going to dispute that. But she also made a lot of conscious decisions, bad conscious decisions that you would expect of a youngster to make, but they were conscious decisions or not you would expect a youngster to make. Most youngsters don't make those bad decisions, but it's more understandable that she would do that. There's some mitigating circumstances. Uh, she gets turned down by the parole board, but or the board for clemency, but she gets a deal from uh, Bill Haslam uh, the outgoing governor of Tennessee, where he cuts her, cuts her sentence back, so she's able to get out of jail, and is now on probation. And my response to all that is, let's just see how she does. Uh, I hope, and I, you know, I wish her, wish her well. Uh, I'm not sure why she's a hero to all of us. She's not a hero to me, and I don't, I don't mean that in a negative sense. I just don't see anything particularly exciting or even inspirational about her story, but that's just me. Uh, The other case uh, I talked about was Reuben Carter, and I did a lot of talk off the top of my head about that case. At some point, I'm going to dig into the details on that, and there are a lot of details on that. It's a very interesting case, and it's to me, it's one of the prime examples of what how the wrongful conviction movement works, and how it moves forward, and how it's grown and changed. But it, the the basic elements have been there for a long time, and Reuben Carter is not the first example of that, but he's a really good example of that. Uh, People who, uh, for ideological reasons, and the fact that he's really the the fact that Reuben Carter's if Reuben Carter were white, there would be no interest in his case. If uh, Centoya Brown were a blonde, blue-eyed girl, everything else exactly the same, she'd still be sitting in prison. Um, that's just a fact. So a lot of this is just simply a lot of race, uh, people feeling uh, either feeling the black power on one side or feeling race guilt on the other going along with the narratives. And uh, I think that's a 
fallacious way of dealing with, with these issues. Fortunately, we don't really have that problem with the West Memphis Three case. We do have this idea that they're uh, trailer trash, throwaway kids, uh, you know, born to lose, couldn't possibly get a break, and we throw in the the trope about the black T-shirts, satanic, uh, panic, heavy metal. And I'm going to just repeat again that the black t-shirts thing is a joke. Uh, Jason Baldwin even described recently one of the officers who questioned him as wearing a black heavy metal t-shirt when he came to talk to him. I'm, I'm assuming Grim Reaper is a heavy metal band of some sort. I'm not really that familiar with him, but my impression is, is that that's what they're all about, and certainly they're a black rock band um, of that era, and the cops were wearing those kinds of shirts. So why would anybody stand out for that reason? Same thing with the haircuts. The haircuts were, Jason's uh, gigantic mullet was, not every kid had that, but it wasn't that unusual. And the only thing that was really unusual about it was was Damien wearing all black, which was an unusual style choice, but even he didn't do that all the time. You can even see that in some of his, uh, a lot of what he's pictured wearing is not that far off the mark, but you know, he, he was a poser. He was a proto-goth, uh, and he pictured himself as, you know, someone from the underworld, so to speak, who was living among these lesser beings. Um, and he certainly projected that onto those he dealt with. And he, so he had a reputation, but it had a lot more to do with his, his personality. And the, whole, the genesis of much of the idea that this was a satanic ritual came from Damien Eccles. He'd fed this idea that there was uh, p potential for a satanic, uh, a satanic ritual sacrifice to Jerry Driver and their numerous contacts. He enjoyed doing this, apparently. Uh, whether he thought he was just pulling uh, uh, Driver's leg and get getting the gullible and naive driver to go along with his narrative, his fantasy, so to speak. It's, you know, some of that's unclear. We can sort of guess it fits in with his kind of person, his personality, which is he liked to play games with people and show how smart he was. Um, not that he's that smart. His IQ test, he had his IQ tested. He was almost perfectly average. It was somewhere right around 100. He's no genius. The, and then there was a little, little talk in the press, no talk in the press of Satanism or satanic panic until Jesse Miskelly Jr. described satanic rites in his confession. And then they go arrest somebody who was an admitted uh, 
practitioner of witchcraft. It suddenly, what seemed like, you know, sort of an off-the-wall theory didn't seem so off-the-wall. So that's where that all came from. It, was some, it wasn't something that just appeared out of the air or was uh, the impetus wasn't in the religious community there such as it is. It's not, it's not a particularly churchy sort of place and I've spent time there. I worked there for almost four years. There are religious people there. There are lots of churches there, as there are all around the country. Uh, but there are an awful lot of people who are, as far as their day-to-day -day lives, are perfectly irreligious. And there's the dog track. Just look at the dog track. If you think this is uh, some sort of small town, uh, a whole bunch of highly, highly religious people running the place. Consider the fact that they've got a casino sitting there uh, as one of their main sources of revenue. And beyond that, there's a whole history there of, of uh, West Memphis being a, a noted center of various forms of vice, including gamblings, nightclubs, etc. It was its heyday was back in the 50s, to be honest with you, or even the 40s. But uh, there was a still enough of that there even uh, uh, up until, uh, well, the, it's still there with the casino. Can't say the rest of the community really caters to that so much anymore because a lot of it's just simply somehow just hanging on the uh, I, I wrapped up, so I've gotten off on that, but I'm going to get back into the Miskelly Confessions. And I just got through wrapping up what uh, the three Paul officers basically destroying one of Miskelly's confessions, which is that he was on the scene of a police call to Highland Trailer Park. They said he wasn't there. You can either believe three officers, or you can believe Miss Kelly's friends wearing yellow armbands who told highly contradictory stories. The jury believed the three police officers, and I believe the three police officers. If you choose to believe that they committed perjury, and that the jury was gullible enough to buy their lies, and that despite all the contradictory stories that Jesse's friends all were telling the truth, then you're free to do that. And now I'm going to get into talking about Miskelly's other activities that afternoon. And it's going to be somewhat, this is going to be somewhat detailed. And you may not, some of you may not even see the point of all this. Uh, it's more of a bigger, it's part of putting a bigger picture together. And so the individual elements sometimes don't, aren't as clear as they can't, as they should be, as they really are if you look at them in context. But if we have somebody describing 
Muskelly being one place, and then somebody describing Muskelly being another place at the same time, then somebody's not telling the truth. And that's what mostly what we're going to be looking at today. And we'll see how far we get. This is from my book, Where the Monsters Go. I have another book. Uh, it's part of a two-volume set. The other book is Blood on Black. And I have a revised, condensed uh, version called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. All the books are available on Amazon in Kindle format, which is quite affordable, and the somewhat less affordable print editions. Here we go. Jennifer Roberts, a 16-year-old 10th grader at Marion High who lived in Highland Trailer Park. And this is during Jesse Muskelly's murder trial, February 1994. Testified she had been at Johnny Hamilton's house about 4 or 4.30. This is on May 5th, 1993. The date when uh, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Muskelly Jr. killed Stevie Branch. Christopher Byers and Michael Moore in Robin Hood Hills, which is a wooded area in West Memphis, Tennessee. Anyway, she said she'd been at uh, this Johnny Hamilton's house about 4 or 4.30 when Miskelly and Miskelly's girlfriend Susie Brewer walked up. She said Christy Jones Moss and Johnny Hamilton were also present. She soon left. Then, quote, I seen him and Christy sitting on his front porch later that afternoon. She was unsure of the time, but later testified it was after 4.30, but before 6 p.m. Uh, about 11 p.m., quote, him, he and Roger Jones, my cousin, came to my house after they got back from Dias Wrestling. They had supposedly gone wrestling in Dias, Arkansas, at an old theater there. Uh, I don't think Roger Jones went. I... I doesn't, that doesn't seem to be indicated anywhere else. Uh, Miskelly stayed about an hour, leaving, quote, a couple of minutes before 12 because my mother was supposed to be home by 12. And she remembered the date because, quote, someone had come and told me that about the incident with Cody being pulled off a bicycle. And little Cody was... Stephanie Dollar's son. Stephanie Dollar's a very good friend of Jesse Miskelly Jr. Last time I checked, she was still a contact person for reaching him. And um, she, he baby helped babysit these kids, which speaks to his level of uh, mental, uh, mental, not mental health, but his mental age. If he's old enough to watch young kids, he's probably not actually got the mentality of a five-year-old like people are prone to talk about um, and Cody had been pulled off a bicycle and slapped by this neighbor which is why the police were out now Jennifer Roberts on cross-examination testified she was wearing a yellow ribbon to show support for Miss Kelly and that she was friends with Miss Kelly and Susie Brewer and she explained that Roger Jones was, quote, my double cousin who was living with her family in May 1993. 
as an aside, I have some double first cousins myself, so I'm, I'm all for double first cousins. Uh, she testified Jones frequently went wrestling in diets, going more than once per week for at least a month before the killings and then afterward. And Miss Kelly had gone with Jones on a number of occasions. She doesn't really speak to her the preciseness and acuity of her remembrance of this particular occasion. She said her friend Vicki Hutchinson mentioned that Miss Kelly had gone wrestling May 5th and that the slapping incident had occurred May 5th and that May 5th was a Wednesday jogging her memory about the date. Uh, Vicki Hutchinson was notoriously the lady who the Miss Kelly friend and neighbor who played detective tried to entrap uh, Damien Eccles into some sort of confession. She was posing as someone who was, you know, she's a, a slightly older lady of about 30 who was trying to entice young Eccles into uh, making a confession about <coughs> his involvement in the crime and Eccles was apparently pretty wary of this. Uh, I think she was fairly transparent with throwing books about witchcraft about the place. And, you know, there's questions about how much interaction there really was between these two, but there's no doubt that they interacted. It's just a question of how much there was. Was it a single visit or was it there much more to it than that? And uh, since both of the people are... Uh, both people involved are noted liars. Uh, Vicki Hutchison, an, an admitted liar. Uh, and Damien Eccles, too, for that matter. He testified on the stand that he would change his testimony to fit, fit whatever facts were necessary. Uh, so he's an admitted liar. So you've got two admitted liars uh, talking uh, with different versions of what went on. Well... You know, basically we know something went on, but there's no way of ever really determining the truth of what went on there. Uh, Jennifer Roberts had given a statement to defense investigator Ron Lax. It was a Memphis detective who injected himself into the, the case and then promptly started serving up uh, invoices to be paid for his investigative work. Uh, she'd given a statement to Ron Lax just a few weeks before, on January 11th, 1994, in which she described the Hutchisons pulling up to the driveway at her aunt's house to tell them about the slapping. Uh, Roberts made no mention of seeing Miss Kelly. She confirmed that Vicki Hutchison bought whiskey for her and other teens. Now, she's friends with Vicki Hutchinson. Vicki, uh, Jennifer is 16. She's in the 10th grade. Vicki Hutchinson's buying her whiskey. She's also, Vicki Hutchinson also confirmed that she bought a bottle of Evan Williams whiskey and she couldn't, it, the context is, is, it, is that uh, Miss Kelly described breaking this bottle of, breaking the bottle uh, at this underpass as he was leaving the, after he left the scene of the killings, 
in anger and disgust, he threw this bottle, broke it, described where it was, to gave it to this confession he gave to prosecutors and the presence of his defense attorneys who were begging him not to confess. They go and uh, Dan Stedham agrees, you know, if they can find the bottle there that, you know, he would agree that, yeah, oh yeah, Jesse's, Jesse actually was guilty. They go there, they find the bottle shard, they find a shard, they they determine, yeah, it was an Evans, Evan Williams bottle. And there couldn't have been thousands of bottle shards there, despite what anybody says, because otherwise, how would they test all those bottle shards? They wouldn't have gone to the liquor store with a thousand bottle shards and test, tested them against uh, all these bottles to determine which ones matched up, because presumably there'd be a lot of matches with a lot of other things. They were, they were able to determine there was this bottle shard there. They left with this bottle shard, and they found a matched bottle of Evan Williams, the same brand of whiskey that Jesse Miskelly described. They contact Vicky Mis- Vicky Hutchison about this because Miskelly said that Vicky Hutchison bought the bottle. She confirms she bought the whiskey for them that day, and then she further confirms after some hesitation, trying to remember what the what the uh, brand was. She remembers it was Evan Williams. Now this is pretty damning evidence in and of itself. What's added to that, Jennifer Roberts confirms that Hutchison was buying whiskey for her and other teens, so this is just further confirms that scenario. And that's the end of Jennifer Roberts. The next witness, 17-year-old Christy Dawn Jones, who was a student at Marion High, had taken a polygraph test in, on October 1st in which she denied any knowledge of who committed the murders. She denied participating in satanic worship. She gave this handwritten statement. No Jason from school, but not in classes. No Damien from classes two years ago in classes. New Jesse lived next door to him in Trailer Park. About two years ago, while in school with Damien and Marion, I saw him cut his arm with something, and he then sucked the blood out of the wound. I had heard that Damien was weird and part of a satanic cult. I was told this by other kids, but I knew if any I never knew if any of it was true. About the middle of May, Vicki Hutchison, who lived in Highland Trailer Park, asked Jesse if he knew Damien. Jesse said that he knew him from school. Vicki asked Jesse to introduce her to Damien. This all took place at Vicky's house. Me, Jesse, Chrissy Anderson, Christy Anderson, Vicky her son Aaron were all present during this conversation. I was working at Shoney's restaurant during the evening hours from the last of April for about six months. The statement made no mention of Miss Kelly on May 5th. That was a statement she'd given uh, back in October. It's interesting that, you know, once again, we get get another story of Damien Eccles drinking blood, which is something you won't see in a Paradise Lost movie or, or in West of Memphis. Uh, has Bob Ruff ever mentioned it? I don't think so.
she's quite familiar with Damien, Jason, and Jesse. Okay, she mentions nothing about Miss Kelly in this statement. Uh, by the time of the trial, she had married, and so Christy Jones Moss was called to the stand. She had an extra name thrown in there, or new name, married name. She recalled May 5th, quote, because I remember Jesse being at his house. And see, she just got through saying she didn't, she didn't make an, she, she didn't mention anything about May 5th in her statement, and now she remembers May 5th. In the same sort of way that Jennifer Roberts was brought to remember the events of May 5th by Vicki Hutchison. It wasn't some sort of independent memory that just popped in. It was a, it was, these were memories that were brought up by people concocting an alibi. A failed alibi, but an alibi. She recalled May 5th, quote, because I remember Jesse being at his house, at his house with me, and I remember seeing him with Susie, and I remember him being down there when the cops were called. When Connie pulled Stephanie's little boy off his bicycle, the first time I had seen him was about 4.30, and we were over at uh, Johnny Hamilton's house, and him and Susie came in. And then when they left, she went home, and they went to his house, and I went over there, and then we were sitting out on his front porch, Jesse's front porch. And Stephanie Dollar pulled up in her car, and Jesse went out to the street to talk to her, and they were talking about what happened with the cops. And then Susie's mom, Beverly, pulled up on the other side of Stephanie and was talking to Stephanie. And then when they both left, some little kids came up riding up on their bicycles talking to Jesse. And then he came back and we went to Johnny Hamilton's for them to get ready to go to Dias. She testified that just she and Miss Kelly went over to Hamilton's. Then they sat around there for a few minutes, and they got in the car, and they left to go to Dias. Jesse, Johnny, Roger, Fred, and a guy named Bill. A few minutes after seven, I'd say it was just about turning dark. It was a little bit light outside, but it was just about turning dark. Okay, a couple, lots of stuff here. Among other things, it was just about turning dark. Well, it wasn't just about turning dark a little bit after seven. I'll fully agree with uh, Bob Ruff that it was probably turning dark more like about 8.30 or so, 8.45. So her time's off here. She describes sitting out on this porch. with uh, Jesse, uh, and Susie's off the scene, Susie Brewer's off the scene, well Susie says she's with Jesse all afternoon, but here Christy is saying she's she's with uh, Jesse that afternoon, and says that she, just she and uh, Jesse Miskelly went over at Hamilton's. No mention of Susie Brewer whatsoever as far as going over to Johnny Hamilton's house. And there are two Johnnies in this, Johnny Hamilton and Johnny Deadman, and they seem to have gone over to at least one of their houses that afternoon. A lot of social interaction, particularly for somebody who supposedly only had the brain of a six-year-old child. Furthermore...
this stuff about the uh, uh, the police coming. Where it was all around six thirty or so. So the, that time frame doesn't really work that well. Under cross examination, and there's probably more there, but I, you know, uh, discrepancies in describing who went to Dias, for instance. But I'm not even going to get into all that. You get the general idea. She's sort of making stuff up. Maybe less than sort of. She is making stuff up. I'm going to do cross-examination. She agreed her statement with, Her statement from October said she was working evening hours at Shoney's in May. She didn't remember not mentioning any events of May 5th. Prosecuting attorney Brent Davis pointed out that she, like other supporters of Miss Kelly, was wearing a yellow ribbon. Now, how dumb was this? You're going to, you know, the jurors are assessing your credibility and you're showing up with a yellow ribbon to show your support for the defendant. In theory, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that if you're standing outside the courthouse but if you want a juror to look at your statement as being, you know, impartial, objective, and true, you don't go in and wear your advocacy on literally on your sleeve, which is what these dumbass supporters of Miskelly did. And apparently Dan Stidham allowed this to happen. Surely he must have had some idea that what the impression, he should have had some idea what the impression would be to have all these supporters showing up with, of Miskelly showing up with yellow ribbons and testifying on his behalf. Very, very poor, very, very poor defense work and absolutely disastrous for any sort of Miskelly defense. And you can see the problems even in this one instance of testimony. And there's more, there's more here. I'm just making the point. And one reason why you'll rarely see any of this assessed is because it gets to be, we've got all these different witnesses and they're all telling all these other divergent stories. It's a, it's a fairly large cast of characters, dozen or so, and none, it doesn't add up to a mis- an alibi at any point. They're all conflicting with each other. They're contradicting each other. How are you going to come up with a credible alibi when you have this many this many alibi witnesses who all tell different stories and, and, and you have witnesses like this who give one statement uh, back in October and then but say nothing about May 5th and suddenly come up with an alibi? She explained why the statement contained nothing concerning May 5th. Quote, the reason that they told me they wanted me to come in there was because I was supposed to be in the cult. That's all they said. They didn't want to know anything. They didn't want to know nothing else. And every time I tried to tell them something about little Jesse, they didn't act like they listened. They'd change the subject. I told them I seen Jesse every time I started to talk about you know, Jesse is a friend or something. They just changed the subject about the cult. Pretty weak, huh? They asked her, they asked about her schedule because, quote, they wanted to know if I had time to go to cult activities in the evenings. 
Chris, Christy then told Davis she sat with Miss Kelly out on the porch, quote, about 6 or 5.30, something like that. For quite a bit of time, I mean it wasn't for maybe an hour, an hour and a half. I, again, I'm not sure what that means. Does it mean it wasn't for maybe an hour, hour and a half? But it's quite a bit of time. What does that mean? 45 minutes? Is it some sort of double negative? And she's actually saying it was like an hour, hour and a half? I don't have a clue. I suspect the jurors weren't really clear on that either. But it's, what is clear is that she's saying at, you know, 6.30, 6, 5.30, 6 or so, she's spending quite a bit of time with Miss Kelly sitting out on this porch. And... And as for Susie Brewer, quote, she was walking around, but she had left after we seen them over at Johnny's. Again, Susie Brewer said she was with Miss Kelly all this whole time. She testified that when Stephanie Dower pulled up in her car, quote, I seen them when they were t- down talking to police and her and Jesse were talking to the police and he was t- trying to tell them where they could find Bobby Dollar because there was supposed to have been a fight or something. Please don't describe this scenario at all. Uh, J- Brent Davis asked, so Jesse went down there to help kind of clarify all this disturbance? <laughs> Which again is, yeah, you want to send the guy with the six-year-old mind down there to straighten out uh, this disturbance. Does that make any sense? I mean, there's some c- serious cognitive dis- dissonance going on there. If you believe that Jesse's semi-retarded, but he is doing all this. Uh, Christy answers, yes, sir. She remembered seeing only one police car, but couldn't say which officer it was because, quote, I don't know one of the cops up there in Marion. And the only officer arriving solo was from the sheriff's department, who's James Dahlheit who had already said that he did not see. Well, you know, I may not have that right. It's possible. I'd have to go check to see if Dollahite's already testified at this point. Dollahite testified during the trial that Miss Kelly was not at the scene. She had seen wrestlers leave for Dias before and after May 5th different dates but what helped crystallize her memory quote it's the fact that I remember Stephanie Dollar pulling up in front of Jesse's house and they were talking about the incident that happened with the police end quote among among other problems for the defense her testimony about sitting for a long period with Miss Skelly conflicted with the testimony of other witnesses Probably going to do just one more witness here because this is going to end up being really long. Charles, and we're going to get into Bubba Ashley here. Charles Allen Bubba Ashley Jr. listed as age 14 during questioning by Mike Allen on June 18th. At that time stated the evening that Connie Mulder slapped Cody Stephanie Dollars 
son at Highland Trail Park that three police cars came down near in front of his house and that he was by himself and that he, Jesse Miskelly Jr., stayed a few minutes and walked back north toward the end of the trailer park. He stated he didn't know what time it was, but that Stephanie Dollar showed him a police report and it was that and that it was 6.30 p.m. He, Charles A. Ashley Jr., didn't see Jesse Miskelly Jr. anymore that evening. Detective Allen asked Charles Ashley Jr. if he had ever seen Jesse Miskelly Jr. with Jason Baldwin or Damian Eccles. He stated that Jesse Miskelly Jr. and Jason Baldwin stayed together a lot and that Jesse Miskelly Jr. used to live in Lakeshore. Charles Ashley Jr. stated that he had seen Damien Eccles about two or three times walking by himself, coming from the wooded area underneath the overpass at Lakeshore under I-55. That has nothing to do with the wooded area that, where the boys were killed. Uh, <coughs> he, Charles Ashley Jr., referred to Jesse Miskelly Jr. as his cousin. Charles Ashley Jr., Mother, Patsy Ellington, and I presume there's no relation to Scott Ellington, who lives with Charles Ashley Sr. is Jesse Miskelly's aunt. Now, that was a statement that uh, Mike Allen wrote out for him uh, back on June 18th. Probably the most significant thing is, is that Stephanie Dollar at that point was already going around showing the police report to the residents of Highland Trailer Park and coming up with an alibi. And that, you know, he does say he saw Miskelly uh, at the scene of this uh, police call along with Stephanie Dollar. It does not coincide with what the police officers said. It's totally at variance with it. And a handwritten note, Bubba Ashley added, quote, I seen Jesse walking from the north of the trailer park. I talked to him that evening and he said he was going to wrestling that night. He stayed just 10 minutes and left going back to the north end of the trail park. Now, Lakeshore, West Memphis, and the murder site are all south of Highland Park. Um, Bubba Ashley, in that little handwritten note, doesn't say, doesn't give a time, and he describes him coming from the north of the trailer park and going back up to the north of the trailer park. But he stays 10 minutes. He doesn't say anything about Susie Brewer or anybody else being in company with him. He also mentions... Also, you know, he's his cousin. He also, uh, Jesse Miskelly's cousin, he also mentions a close association with uh, Jesse Miskelly and Jason Baldwin. And he goes on to write, Jesse and Jason stayed together a lot when Jesse lived in Lakeshore. I've seen Damien just a couple of times. I've seen him under the interstate overpass by himself. I have known Jesse all his life. Now, field notes from Mike Allen added, stated that the evening that Connie Molden slapped um, 
Cody, Stephanie Dollar's son at Highland Trailer Park, stated that there was like an argument going on. Jesse Miskelly was by himself saying something about going to wrestling. Um, I was out there seeing what was going on, and Jesse came up walking, came walking up by himself. Not with Stephanie, not with Christy Jones, not with anybody else. He was here a few minutes, and he left. He didn't stay long, and it was when the police was there. So he says he didn't stay long. It was police was there. Is he saying he just stayed while the police were there and then left? It's a little unclear, isn't it? He came down from the north end of the trailer park and walked down. When he left, he walked back toward the north end of the trailer park. Stated it was about 30 minutes after the argument that the police sheriffs showed up three different Mr. Dollahite two Marion police cars. He does get that right. It was... Now, Bubba got much older in the meantime. He gave his age at 17 at trial. I, I don't know how old he actually was. Uh, obviously, somebody got the times, the, the age wrong at some point. Under questioning from Stidham, he recalled the incident that brought in, quote, about three, four, something like that, police cars, quote, from both directions of the park. He recalled that he, his mother, Patsy Ashley, and his dad, who was mowing the yard, were present, as were Jesse Jr., the Dollars, and his sister, Jennifer Lynn Ashley. Concerning Miss Skelly, I seen him walking down the streets, and I met him on the corner, and we started talking. We was on the corner about eight yards away from a police car. We was fit talking about him fixing to leave to go to Dias to go wrestling. We stayed there for a little bit, and then Jesse said he had to go, so he left. Once again, there's no mention of any of the, you know, she's not sitting out on the porch. She's not with Susie Brewer. Uh, doesn't coincide with, is not corroborated by the statements from the police that Jesse Miskelly was on the scene. Uh, they don't mention uh, Bubba Ashley either. Brent Davis, honed, the prosecutor, Brent Davis honed in on how Bubba came to remember May 5th, asking, did anybody ever show you a police report from that day? Uh, and Bubba answered, I've seen, well, Stephanie, ha Stephanie Dollar, Stephanie had a police report, but I don't recall. It was about the argument or something, what time the police arrived and stuff. She gave it to my mother and my mother had it on her desk and she showed me. I just glance at it. I didn't pick it up and read it. But he seems to know a lot about it, doesn't he? Uh, Ashley testified he did not remember saying that Stephanie Dollar had shown him a police report as recorded on June 18th. Ashley said Miss Kelly and Baldwin weren't close friends. Quote, they just hung out and went places together. Okay, but you described them earlier as being close. But even so, he says they hung out and went places together. They weren't, it's not as if they didn't know each other. We could argue about how, what kind of, how close their friendship was. <coughs> and then Ashley's testimony about walking with Miss Kelly just prior to the Dias trip conflicted with other witnesses. 
In other words, there's going to be other witnesses that are going to describe Miskelly doing other things other than walking around with Bubba Ashley right before the dice trip. We've already heard that. Uh, did Jennifer Roberts mention anything about Bubba Ashley? Nope. Um, Susie Brewer, Stephanie Dollar had elements in their story that conflict with Bubba Ashley's story. So we're already off to a bad start with just the two witnesses witnesses I've gone over today. Uh, and there's more. I'm not, I'm not going to do them all in one day. So bear with me. But if you're getting the idea that um, the Skelly alibi witnesses were a clown show, you would be absolutely correct. And that's it for episode 54 of The Case Against. Stay well. Stay home. And then if you can, you know, if you can do it, go get outside. Go for a nice leisurely walk in the woods or something if you can do that. We can go to the beach here where I am. And the beach is quite nice. Uh, not likely to encounter a whole lot of people there. Certainly, it's easy enough to keep six feet away. And I will be talking to you again soon. Thank you.